Welcome to Bloom, a conversations podcast about anything and everything, featuring conversations with people who have led meaningful, interesting and flourishing lives. I'm lucky to be joined today by Tu Li, a young lawyer, community worker and political advocate. Tu recently came to national and even international prominence with articles recently published in the New York Times in the wake of the Australian Labor Party's decision to nominate the former Premier of New South Wales and current Federal Senator Christina Keneally for pre-selection in the Western Sydney electorate of Fowler, ahead of two as the locally preferred candidate. This backroom political decision has sparked a national conversation around cultural diversity within our representative institutions, multiculturalism in Australia, the disconnect of the political class from everyday people, and cultural and socio-economic barriers to participation in civic and economic life. So thank you so much for joining me today too. It's a, a real pleasure to be speaking with you. Hi, Nick. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, no worries at all. It's, it's amazing to have you on, on the show. Uh, I think your story has really resonated with a lot of people around Australia. And I was actually speaking to a friend um, who's also of Vietnamese heritage who met you through ASIC, which is a student organisation in her first year of university at RMIT. And she described you as one of the most positive, genuine and caring people she's met who really cares and has so much sunshine in herself, which I thought was a really lovely um, comment. And it's just a delight to have you on the show. And hopefully it's a nice little way to kickstart your weekend, having such a lovely thing said about you. Yeah, that's really, really nice. And I'm, I'm not sure I know who your friend is, but that's really lovely to hear. So before we get into the vowel of pre-selection and conversations around politics, I'd love to learn a bit more about you as a person. You've spoken and written about your family's journey as refugees to Australia from Vietnam in the wake of the Vietnam War. Can you talk a bit about your family's journey to Australia and what it was like to begin and build their new lives in this country? Sure. So my family's journey to Australia after the Vietnam War um, occurred before I was born. My parents, they got married in Vietnam, they met in Saigon, and they had two daughters in Vietnam. So I have two older sisters. And like many Vietnamese people at the time, uh, a few years had already passed since the end of the war. And my dad knew that he couldn't continue to live and, and raise a family under an oppressive regime. So he made the decision to escape the country. And now my parents don't talk about this much, but my dad thought that the journey was too dangerous for my mom and my two sisters. So he actually escaped Vietnam on his own first and left the family behind. So this was back in 1983, and my second sister was just born at the time. There were a few failed attempts before he made it to the refugee camp in Malaysia, and then he ended up, he ended up going to Australia and not knowing a, a word of English. He told me that during his immigration interview, he was asked about, you know, what his plans were in Australia. And he told them that he wanted to study and get his qualifications in Australia. So mm. they sent him to Adelaide. So he learnt English. Then he went to Adelaide University and got his bachelor's degree in computer science. And unlike a lot of people at his age, you know, middle-aged with a family, he prioritised his education rather than making a living. And of course, he was working there while studying as well um, to be able to survive. But he spent seven years, um, in fact, separated from my mom and my sisters until wow. he was able to bring them over to Australia. 
And my mom tells me this story um, sometimes. She brings it up that she was pretty disappointed to have been separated from her husband for seven years and raise mm-hmm. the two daughters on their own, um, you know, thinking that he was saving a lot of money for the family. Um, but instead, she came to Australia and they had to live in someone's garage. So oh, wow. uh, once she came to Australia and they were reunited, I was born a year after that. And at the time, my sisters were already 11 and eight years old. And I think that for them, it was probably really difficult to adjust at first, especially growing up without, um, you know, our dad in their lives for most of their childhood in in Vietnam. And personally, I don't have much recollection of life in Adelaide at all. We moved to Sydney when I was about three, um, but my dad, you know, had to work. My mom was studying English. So they put me in childcare from uh, when I was one month old. And honestly, I couldn't even begin to fathom how difficult it would have been to you know, leave everything you know behind and start a new life in a new country. Um, but I know that there are many people who risked their lives and made the perilous journey to sea, you know, never having reached mm. land again. So I'm just really grateful that my family was safe and reunited, mm. even though it took so long. Yeah, that's a really humbling and profound notion, actually, isn't it? Um, were your family able to join a, a sort of an established Vietnamese community when they first arrived in Sydney and Adelaide, for that matter? Um, well, I, when we first moved to Sydney, we were living with family friends. Um, yeah. So we had known people here. And at that point in time, so this was the early 90s, there was already a growing Vietnamese community. So, yeah, there was um, some support. Yeah, wonderful. And I'm curious as to what are some of the fondest memories you have growing up in that community as a child I think everyone has really looking back as you get a bit older thinking back about beautiful almost sacred sort of childhood memories and impressions we had of a more narrow kind of understanding of the world at that time Um, but yeah I'm curious as to what some of those memories are and the biggest influences that your parents family and community had on you So I feel really, really lucky that I grew up in a very loving and supportive environment. And of course, my parents, they had to work really hard and, you know, we weren't rich or or very well connected, Um, but I didn't really know any better. And I remember growing up feeling that I was um, quite privileged. You know, I had a roof over my head. I had um, amazing older sisters that I really looked up to and I didn't ask for much, but I, I actually felt that I had everything I thought I needed. And that's especially when I compared myself, you know, to kids back in Vietnam, like my cousins or even the kids I saw in World Vision or a Smith family. And I guess within my family, there was a really big emphasis about maintaining our culture and our traditions. Mm. And a big part of that was or is language. So my parents made me go to Vietnamese school from a very young age. I didn't quite mind it, but I remember thinking, you know, why do I have to go to school five days a week and learn everything in English? Then on (laughs) Saturday, go to Vietnamese school and learn Vietnamese. And I remember a lot of times having to miss out on a lot of friends' birthday parties because of Vietnamese school. Um, So yeah, that, that wasn't, that was something I didn't quite enjoy, but um, I actually learnt Vietnamese throughout high school as well. And in fact, I did Vietnamese continuous as a subject for my HSC, which is the, the highest school certificate. Yeah. Um, and I was one out of two students in that course that were Australian born Vietnamese. Everyone else was an overseas student. So I found it really difficult. But I also grew up in the um, Vietnamese Buddhist community. And mm-hmm. I think that really shaped who I am today. 
the, the Vietnamese Buddhist community, it, they're like my second family. It was such a great environment to grow up in. Um, we didn't just learn about Buddhism. We learned how to put, you know, Buddhist teachings into practice. We were really connected to the community and to nature. Um, I learned a lot about the world around me, about humanity, um, how to engage with people of all ages, how to be a good citizen. We did a lot of camping, a lot of volunteer work in the community. Um, I just have so many fond memories and, and great experiences growing up. And when I became an, an adult, I had to go through the training courses, but then I then became a leader within the organization. And I still today volunteer as a youth leader. Yeah, it's fascinating. And I suppose you can draw a pretty straight line from your experiences you know, living and working with the community and, and, and being involved in that faith and social justice work to your current work as a lawyer and coordinator at the Marrickville Legal Centre. So could you talk a bit about your journey to law school and the legal profession and also what sort of work you do on a day-to-day basis in the areas of law you practice in currently? Sure. So when I finished high school, um, I wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to pursue as a career. Um, I knew what I didn't want to do. And I definitely didn't want to become a doctor or an accountant or yeah. anything like that. Um, like blood. No. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I, I actually didn't want to be a lawyer either. Um, but I knew that, you know, the law, it encroaches on almost every aspect of society. And I knew that knowledge of the law was going to be useful, regardless of the career choice that I, I made. So I studied, I actually studied commerce and law um, initially, as I mentioned, with no intention of ever becoming a practitioner. And I think a lot of people who study law don't necessarily get admitted or practice the law. Um, And I was always told throughout my law degree that, you know, there's generally two types of people who become lawyers, those who want to make a lot of money and those who want to help people like social justice warriors. So I was definitely one of those law students, um, you know, leading more to the second category. Uh, But after graduating from my double degree, my first ever full-time role was actually for a global logistics company. So I got a, a business graduate position with um, DHL Supply Chain. And mm-hmm. I'll, I'll tell you a funny story. So I think there are about seven graduates that year, including me. And on our first day, we were introduced to the CEO and the directors of the company. So we came into this huge boardroom um, and all these, you know, middle-aged white men were sitting around the table, but one woman, um, and she turned out to be the the secretary there to take minutes. And so we were all introducing ourselves and were asked, you know, where do you see yourself in the future in this company? And I said, I see myself sitting at this table and I didn't mean as a secretary. But I eventually just left the company after I finished my two-year grad program. So I wasn't there for long. Um, Mm -hmm. So that never actually eventuated. Um, But I don't think that stopped my ambition to have a seat at the table. Mm -hmm. And so after my grad role, I did my PLT, which is the practical legal training with an organization called RACS, Refugee Advice Casework Service, and also had the opportunity to work at the Asylum Seeker Center in refugee law. And I really loved, yeah, I loved working in the community legal sector. Um, But at that time, there were a lot of funding cuts um, to the sector and there were no positions available for new lawyers. So I had to move um, and I went and worked in corporate migration so I worked for a corporate migration firm and this was a really great experience I had an opportunity to work with some global partners I learned a lot from the incredible managers I had there Um, but I knew that if I had stayed there 
um, I wasn't going to be fulfilled in the long term. Mm. So, and, you know, at that time outside of work, I was doing all these things in the community that I was passionate about, but I really had this very narrow view that I had to pursue and build a career, which was separate to my passion for community and grassroots Mm. organizing and things that I did on a voluntary basis in my spare time. Um, But I got then to a point where I thought, you know, if I continued with this um, law firm, of course, you know, I'd be able to progress my career. Um, but I, I had to really ask myself, is that what I really wanted in, in five years' time? And, you know, I looked at all my senior managers, who are all wonderful people, but none of them seemed to, you know, really love the, their jobs the way that I wanted to love my job. Yeah. And I wanted to, you know, jump out of bed every day, super excited to go to work. And um, I was just wasn't getting that feeling from that role. And I knew that, you know, individual casework, it just wasn't what I wanted to do forever. Um, And at that time, I was actually serving as the general secretary of the Vietnamese community in Australia. And that's where I met Chris Hayes, who's the current member for Fowler. And he Uh was very close to the Vietnamese community. You know, he came to all our events. He supported all our initiatives. And I got to talking to him um, and getting to know him. And he knew I worked in immigration law. So he actually offered me um, a job in his office because he knew that I was looking for different opportunities. And he knew because I worked in immigration law um, and because as a federal MP, he dealt with a lot of immigration matters. um, Yeah, he offered me an opportunity to come and work for him. Um, So long story short, I started to work for Chris. Um, I then went on to manage his um, election campaign at the last election, um, Mm -hmm. but knew too that this is wasn't what I wanted to do long-term. And I, I, initi- I then found my way back into the community legal sector. Um, at that time, um, well, my main role was to coordinate a statewide um, service assisting exploded migrant workers. Um, but at the moment, I work um, both at Marrickville Legal Centre um, and also at Western Sydney Community Legal Centre um, as a solicitor in developing a new service called the Domestic Violence Response um, Pilot Program. So it's a a service that is focused on assisting men from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds who have been um, affected by domestic violence, um, whether that's as a victim or as a perpetrator. So it's really interesting work. I really enjoy it um, in terms of, you know, what I see on a day-to-day basis and the work that I do. Um, it's it's very broad for DV, not necessarily DV matters, but the clients that we see, you know, we assist them with anything from, um, you know, divorce matters to, um, you know, AVO breaches, um, minor criminal um, offences. So it, it is really quite broad work. And I think what I'm, and I mentioned I never really intended to be a lawyer, but what I really um, think is important is being able to access justice. And I think that it's such a a big issue where a lot of people uh, and a lot of vulnerable people within our communities um, aren't able to access the legal system and whether that's because of the cost or the perceived cost um, or even not knowing that there are a lot of mainstream services that can assist like legal aid or the community legal um, sector. Mm. So um, I think that that's really important and and what I try to do every day in my work is really um, break down that barrier to access. So a couple of points that really stand out for me in those reflections is that firstly you've been able to find in the day-to-day work you do with the casework, working in the community legal centre, that kind of fulfilling sense of meaning and purpose and an impact that you're able to have in the community 
um, through working across the whole range of matters you are now in terms of you know the criminal work, domestic violence space, um, migration and economic issues as well. But secondly, you're able to have more of an impact at a systems level, you know, by way of you know your, your reference to designing that legal system or support service for migrants who have been exploited in their workplaces. And I mention all that because I see it um, as being foundational to the work in politics and policy that you've had as well, working with Chris Hayes as the member for Fowler, with an intention really to drive that macro or systems level reform and change um, to the system and to Australian society, all from a place which seems to me to be rooted you know, quite deeply in your, in your upbringing and your sense of social responsibility and, 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 and faith communities and also just your lived experience. So I guess that seems like a pretty neat segue to the whole question about the Fowler pre-selection and, and your whole experience of trying to enter that political world to make those kinds of changes. So could you outline for our listeners what actually happened um, in that Fowler pre-selection process? Because it seemed as though on the bare facts you had the endorsement or the kind of the backing of the sitting member, Chris Hayes, member for Fowler, uh, and also the kind of support or uh, endorsement of the local rank and file members within the Labor branches in Fowler. But then there was this sort of overriding presence of the national executive uh, of the Labor Party and a decision from on top or within the factions to to install Christina Keneally as another candidate. And I think it's it's quite bemusing to a lot of people outside the political and media world who don't understand how the political machinery of pre-selections works and you know, it seemed like an extremely traumatising um, and difficult thing to have happened to you, but also the electorate in the sense that its wishes were overridden, basically. And yeah, it obviously prompted a lot of outpouring of support and emotion. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I guess if we if we speak about this issue, I'd have to go back to March this year, um, and that's when Chris Hayes, the current member for Fowler, had announced his retirement. And in doing so, he also announced that he was um, supporting me as the pre-selected candidate for the federal seat of Fowler, which is a very unusual thing um, to do. And it doesn't mean that, you know, I was going to get it or that, um, you know, he was able to anoint me. It doesn't quite work that way. And Fowler just happens to be a very large or have a very large Vietnamese population. Um, yes, I am Vietnamese. That doesn't necessarily mean that I would automatically get, you know, the Vietnamese vote. Um, but that had occurred back in March, and that was made quite public. And frankly, I have only ever expressed my intention to run uh, for labor, labor pre-selection for the seat of Fowler. You know, I, I knew that it wasn't going to be a free ticket to parliament. Um, you know, I was hoping that it would be a, um, you know, a rank and file pre-selection process. Um, I think that, you know, local members would appreciate that. But there are rules within the party um, that I guess would allow for what people say, um, you know, other candidates being parachuted in. And so that had occurred, oh, I forget whether it's three or four weeks ago now, but a couple of weeks ago, that's when I found out um, from the media, that's how I heard, like everybody else. Really? That's, wow. My yeah. And, and that's when I found out that Senator Keneally uh, was what, you know, as I said, was to be parachuted 
um, in as a Labor candidate for the seat of Fowler. So this is very much an internal, you know, factional party matter. Um, unfortunately, uh, even though there's been a, a lot of coverage of it and a lot of public commentary, um, but public opinion has pretty little to no bearing on internal party decisions. And, and this issue, um, this actually happens on both sides of politics. Yeah. You know, I know recently we've been reminded of how our very own Prime Minister won his seat of Cook. By getting the party executive to roll the preferred local candidate, Michael Tauk. Yeah, exactly. And so when you say factional machinations, that's essentially the party executive of either Liberals or Labor or the Greens intervening and, and putting in their preferred person for pre-selection rather than someone who's locally endorsed. Yeah, I think more or less that is the case. So it's wow. it's nothing new. Um, unfortunately, on this occasion, you know, a very internal party matter uh, became very public. Um, and I think that ultimately it was an expedient solution to a problem that the Labor Party had in the Senate because both Senator Keneally and Senator O'Neill wanted to be number one um, on the Senate ticket. So, you know, a, factionate, a factional deal was done and and that was that. And, you know, I'm a member of the right faction of the party too, you know, the same faction. And for some reason, I wasn't invited. I, I didn't get notification um, of the particular meeting where Senator Keneally was, in fact, endorsed as a Labor candidate for Fowler. Um, but there was absolutely no chance for me to run against Senator Keneally. It was stacked against me. Um, mm. And of course, you know, so, I so was... So you're not going to run, is that right? No. Uh, well, not as the... Well, definitely don't have an opportunity. She's now yeah. endorsed as the um, uh, candidate so for is. Fowler, okay. for Labor. Um, yeah. And, of course, you know, I was disappointed in the outcome because that meant that I didn't even get an opportunity to run for pre-selection, mm. but no one else did either. So in the wake of that pre-selection decision, you published a really moving post on LinkedIn and Facebook, more of a cri de coeur or cry from the heart, which went absolutely viral. And it was largely about the need for authentic representation in politics, the importance of cultural diversity, and your unique perspectives as a Vietnamese-Australian woman from Western Sydney, and how this all fits within the broader notions of Australian identity. The post prompted an outpouring of supportive comments from people of culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds in Australia, many of whom don't normally engage in or comment on politics. What exactly did you say in your post, and why do you think it resonated so profoundly across the country? Yeah. Um, well, funnily enough, I've used social media more in the last month than I have in my whole life, and it's oh, really? pretty exhausting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. it, it was You're good pretty, at it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, yeah. It was a pretty long post. Um, I think generally about my reflections on my experiences, um, and particularly as a minority Australian um, who is not of the political class. Um, but I guess you had, you know, the audacity to. Th- even throw my hat in the ring and have a crack at uh, becoming a parliamentarian. And so it was never about, you know, using this opportunity as a stepping stone for higher office or anything like that. Um, Mm. I really just saw it as an opportunity to serve my community and an opportunity made possible because of the support of the outcome going member. And I knew Mm. without his support, I probably would never have had this opportunity. Um, you know, the events of the past few weeks, it all happened really quickly. Um, I had to react very quickly. You know, I didn't have the luxury of time to think things through or clearly. And I just really um, spoke from the heart 
And honestly, mm-hmm. I, I didn't even realize I had so much to say. <laughs> I think, <laughs> and I, I would think that anyone in my position would have probably done the same thing. Um, and people are quite surprised that, you know, mm-hmm. I didn't stay quiet or let this yeah, just exactly. go away. Um, but I just did what I thought was the right thing to do. Um, and I was also bombarded by the media. Um, so I felt like I had little choice but to speak out about yeah. it. Um, but I know a lot of people were interested and that that even that first week, I just woke up with all these thoughts in my mind and just had to get it down. And, yeah. and I never even thought of myself as a writer, but I just um, had so much to, to say, like I said. Yeah. And I think that a lot of people may have resonated with what I had to say uh, because it is a very common experience. It's a common experience for uh, minority Australians. It's a common mm-hmm. experience for women, uh, young people, people yep. from culturally diverse backgrounds, you know, to be sidelined and to be underestimated and yep. having to work twice as hard to prove ourselves um, or even to be seen and heard. And I think this spans across institutions and industries mm-hmm. and workplaces. And I think ultimately, you know, we are a multicultural country, um, but I'm sure that anyone who is from a minority community like me has experienced discrimination at some point in their lives because of who they are, you know, where they live and their background. Beautifully expressed. And I think that's exactly what I did. It it articulated or gave voice to uh, a common experience, which is so widespread amongst, you know, all of Australian society, particularly for minority groups, as you say, which is largely endured in silence and so rarely I think do we have such an articulate kind of example of people speaking up and and calling it out and which is why I I found the responses to your post to be so moving as well because it was evidence that it had empowered others to take a stand too. And one of the biggest national reckoning moments to come from this has been about cultural diversity within our representative institutions like Parliament. Very few of the 227 members of the House of Reps and the Senate are of Asian or South Asian backgrounds, while 14.4% of the Australian population has Asian ancestry. Additionally, while about a quarter of the population of Australia is non-white, members of minority groups only make up about 6% of the federal parliament. Why is this the case, and what is the impact on culturally and linguistically diverse communities as a result of not having adequate representation in our systems of government? Um, I think that that this has a lot to do with power and privilege Mm. and people who hold power being unwilling to to give up or even share their power. And as a nation, I think we've only abolished, you know, the white Australian policy, I think, in the last 50-odd years or so. So there are people, you know, alive today who have lived through and were subject to very racist laws in this country. And and that's just a fact. And I think that we've we've obviously come a long way. Um, You know, we've made a a lot of progress, particularly in terms of gender diversity. And I I feel very proud, for example, of Labor's affirmative action policy. Um, But Australia is you know, we're becoming an increasingly culturally diverse nation and over 20% of us have non-European cultural backgrounds. So Mm. I think it's pretty pretty dismaying that only about 6% of the federal parliament are non-Anglo. And that's Mm. especially when you look at how far ahead comparable countries like the UK, Canada and New Zealand Mm. are compared to us. 
Um, you know, even the Conservative Party in the UK have championed diversity. You know, what does that yeah. say about um, us? So I think that, yeah. Within as Cabinet said, as well, it's not just the legislature. Sorry, it's not just Parliament. It's um, it's also actually within Cabinet and the highest levels of, of government too, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't, and, and here you don't have that reflection necessarily of the population in its representative institutions. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And as a, a representative democracy, you know, that's, what you would expect for our our parliament to be representative of the communities, but unfortunately, that's not the case. Yeah. Yet. So you yeah yeah indeed. So your comments about the lack of cultural diversity within the Labor Party and Parliament, especially, have attracted significant support from Labor figures such as Dr. Anne Ali, an MP from Western Australia of Egyptian heritage, who had a memorable line that politics can't just be a trope that Labor pulls out parades while wearing a sari and eating some Kung Pao chicken to make ourselves look good. The Health Services Union also recently quit the ALP right faction to protest Keneally's nomination. Do you sense that things will change as a result of your experience and your outspokenness to shine a light on these issues? I sure hope so. Um, I think change in politics is never inevitable. I think it takes strong and gutsy leadership and it takes pressure from both outside and from within parties. And I, I believe that, you know, meaningful, sustainable change, it takes time and it takes organisation. And obviously, you know, this isn't going to change overnight. Um, and even if I feel, you know, what happened in Fowler is a complete missed opportunity, um, I'm actually really glad that the broader issue of diversity and representation um, is being discussed um, and being discussed in a very public way, and that more people who, you know, weren't necessarily interested in politics are now paying attention to this. So I think it's a great thing, and I hope that it means that parties will take it seriously and make mm. it a priority. And I think that if it takes me having to miss out on this opportunity on this occasion with Fowler, but it means that you know, five, ten other candidates from diverse backgrounds are pre-selected and pre-selected for winnable seats, then I mm. see that as a win for all of us. That's such a wonderfully mature and, and gracious and generous response. And I, I really do hope and, oh, in fact, I believe that, yeah, you will one day get that opportunity to serve in Parliament, whether it's state or federal, and to represent and work for your community. But just coming back to my friend Kathy, who had those really lovely remarks about you at the start of the conversation... And she was saying to me that the worrying thing about you know, the situation that un- unfolded in Fowler is that a lot of people from minority or culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds in Australia simply tune out of the political process because they see it as something that's simply not open to them. You know, they're not taken seriously or given a fair a fair go. And, you know, they go and make change in other avenues, you know, be it through working in their professions or in the social purpose space across the community or any other myriad ways. But politics, which, you know, has one of the biggest kind of levers to, to make really big changes across society and positive ones, wouldn't be a particularly fruitful um, endeavour. And to me, that's what's at stake here. It's this tragedy of losing, you know, entire generations of people all across society. And that's a tragedy for our civic culture, I think. Yeah, it, it would be. And I think that... Um, you know, our leaders can inspire a generation with their words, um, but they could also easily squash our aspirations. So it's really important that they're mindful of that, um, about what they say and what they do. 
um, because it has very deep ramifications. But I really do hope that you know this doesn't discourage anyone. It certainly doesn't discourage me. Um, so mm. I think that we should use this as a, a motivation. And yes, we have to work harder. Um, you know, we have to push. We have to put more pressure. We have to do a, a lot more um, maybe than than others um, who are more privileged, but that doesn't mean that we should give up. And I think that it, it takes all of us to to really fight this. Um, and, you know, for a lot of minorities and for people like me who grew up in Western Sydney, you know, we, we fight every day. So it, it's nothing it's nothing yeah. out of the ordinary. It's nothing new. Um, you know, we're, yeah. we're constantly um, fighting every day of our lives. So I think we really need to, to continue that. But do it together. Mm. And just to round out this point of discussion, it's not just politics and our representative institutions which struggle to make space for people of um, culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. The phrase bamboo ceiling is used to refer to a multitude of factors which prevent the rise of Asian Australians to the top of the professional world. According to the Human Rights Commission's report last year, less than 5% of Australians of Asian heritage make it to senior executive levels. Only 1.6% 1, 1. become CEOs. Could you talk a bit about the systemic factors and issues within Australia that cause this? and maybe include some stories from your community and peer group which illustrate what the reality of the situation is like. Yeah, absolutely. And unfortunately, I think it's it's not always deliberate either. I think, you know, a lot of unconscious bias has led to many incredibly passionate and talented people um, across all industries to miss out on advancing their careers or getting a promotion because mm. they often get overlooked and passed up. Um, so I think even if companies have a diversity and inclusion um, policy or, or principles within their firms, um, when diverse voices aren't being heard and we're not part of that process, then, you know, the decision-making can often be impaired. Um, mm. And I've I've actually experienced this in the workplace before um, and it's, it's nothing new. This is not the first time um, mm. that I've been, you know, underestimated or sidelined. I was actually forced... Um, to apply for a role that I was already performing. Um, mm -hmm. I was already in the job, but I was made to reapply for it and go through the application process again, up against one of my managers who I was at that time already reporting into. So they were senior than me. And that person was obviously older than I was, had about 10 years of experience working in the industry um, and was a little bit wider than me. Yeah. And I remember just thinking to myself, you know, how the heck was I going to get this role over her? It was pretty mm. demoralizing. Yeah, for sure. And in your recent social media post I mentioned earlier, you dedicated it to everyone who doesn't always feel like a true blue, fair dinkum Aussie and reflected on the challenges people from minority communities have in feeling a part of Australian culture and identity. So what does Australia and Australianness mean to you? Can you talk a bit about how culturally and linguistically diverse communities or minority communities often feel excluded from what is perceived to be a mainstream identity? So my views of being an Australian has definitely evolved over the years. Um, I absolutely love being an Australian um, and, you know, not just any Australian, but one with Vietnamese heritage. And I think that's taken me some time to um, really come to terms with. But I really do love living in Australia and calling Australia home. 
And I think that I've been pretty fortunate um, in my life that I've been able to do a bit of traveling. And I've got to say that there is no other place like Australia you know, our diversity, our sense of mateship, um, our values of fairness, democracy, the rule of law, these things should never be taken for granted. Um, And while we obviously still have a long way to go, um, and, you know, we celebrate our diversity and multiculturalism, um, but I think what's really important is that we also need to reflect on the things that we need to improve on. Um, to be a fairer and to be a more cohesive and inclusive society. Mm -hmm. And I think that that really comes down to addressing our history, particularly our history of colonisation and the devastation that that's brought onto our First Nations people and in a very truthful and open way. Um, I don't think we're we're good at that um, just yet as a country, but I think that as a as a nation, we need to not only acknowledge but take positive steps to rectify um, our past deeds, so that we can heal and flourish as a country together. Have you heard of the artist Peter Drew? He did these sort of um, posters, which are all over Melbourne. I've seen a couple in Sydney actually since moving here, but they're called Monga Khan Aussie posters, and these posters have beautiful portrait shots. The, the original one is a photograph of Monga Khan, which was taken 100 years ago in Australia when he was one of thousands of people applying for exemptions to the White Australia policy. And he worked to sell goods in Victoria. But there are photos of Vietnamese migrants, other migrants, First Nations people, Cameliers from the Middle East. And all the posters have this big text saying Aussie in capital letters at, at the bottom of it. And it's a really cool idea of way of kind of getting you to think about, you know, our sense of who is an Aussie and what Australia and Australianness is, is actually so much more expansive and inclusive than um, like the kind of narrow conception that we have, you know, through that like Southern Cross tattoo kind of stereotype. Yeah, mm. I, I haven't heard of the um, the artists and those illustrations, but I absolutely love that. And I, I have to say, I do have a few friends that have Southern Cross tattoos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so, you know, no, nothing on them. Um, they're, they're great people and I love them. Um, but, but you're right. I think that the, the idea of what it means to be an Australian is changing and that's only a, a good thing. Um, and it should be, it shouldn't just be, you know, the, the white Australian that people often think about. And sometimes when, when I used to travel um, abroad before the pandemic and yep. I say I'm Australian, they're People will be confused. They'll be like, you're not, you know, white. You don't have blonde hair Mm. and blue eyes. Mm. And um, I think that that's changing as well in terms of what it means to be an Australian. And I think we really need to embrace that. And I wrote recently a post about being a hyphenated Australian and how that's Mm. actually my superpower. So I think that as minority... Vietnamese Australian, you mean by that? uh, Yeah. So being a hyphenated, whatever it is, as an Australian, you can be Vietnamese Australian, you can be anything Australian, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But that's, that only adds to, um, to your, to your character, to who you are and your, your identity. Um, And I think that the more hyphens you have, the the better, and that should be Mm -hmm. celebrated. um, And you, you should definitely not feel like you're any less Australian because of that. Yeah. So just coming to the end of the conversation today, but if we could zoom in on your community um, and Western Sydney generally, um, which you, as you say, you've served for your whole life and, and, and had hope to in Parliament and, and, may, and may one day still do. But in a more poetic sense, could you sort of talk about 
what Fowler and its people represent as a reflection of of that modern Australia, you know, because I think a lot of the time it's you know, depicted glancingly in the media um, and not really given that sort of voice and authentic understanding, um, yeah, as a, as a, a wonderful community in and of itself. Yeah, you're right. And I think that Fowler is arguably one of the most diverse electorates in Australia. It's an absolute melting pot of cultures and I, I absolutely love it. And I feel very fortunate to have grown up in such a diverse and multicultural region of Australia. And I was exposed to many different cultures from a very young age um, and also had a very strong sense of belonging. So I grew up in, in my community, but also um, you know, had that uh, exposure. And I think statistically, Fowler is quite a socioeconomically disadvantaged area. Mm-hmm. You know, it's home to many newly arrived migrants and refugee families, many of whom escaped their war-torn homeland. Um, but it's also very rich um, in culture and community. And I think that the people of Fowler are extremely resilient um, and also very compassionate. We come together in tough times, such as during a pandemic, to mm. help each other out. And despite a lot of the you know negative media coverage about Western and Southwestern Sydney in general, um, I've seen how the people of our community have ensured that no one is left behind or that they fall through the cracks. Mm. And a lot of community groups and organisations, you know, civil society have really had to step up to fill this void that had been left behind because of very out of touch and unfortunately tone death policies um, that our leaders mm-hmm. have imposed on us, particularly during COVID. Yeah, for sure. Those LGA restrictions in Western Sydney were pretty extreme. And so to wrap up the interview, being part of politics is about the future as much as it is about the present. What are some of the biggest political issues you'd like to work on in Parliament, both for Australia and for the people of Fowler? Oh, so many. I wouldn't even know where to start. Um, I guess the if I had to really narrow it down, I think the first thing um, would be to commit to the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Um, mm-hmm. I think that it's critical, absolutely vital for us to recognise First Australians through a voice to Parliament and I think that that's the least that we could do and I think we could do a better job of connecting migrant communities with that too. I feel like there is a sense of, uh, you know, we don't have the right to have a say in this because we are you know, newly arrived or guests in this country and it takes a long time to, to feel that develop that sense of belonging and feel that this is our home too and that, you know, we should have a say in things like this um, and have a voice to uh, stand in solidarity with our First Nations community. Um, So I think that that's probably where I'd start. Um, Another thing that I feel quite strongly about is our current immigration policy. And I often reflect on this and I think that if the Vietnam War were to occur, you know, in this century in this decade, um, I would never be born in Australia. I'd probably be Mm. born, you know, on an offshore detention somewhere and would probably Mm. never have the opportunities that I have had growing up um, in this country. And I I know and my parents in my community reminds me all the time we we have this saying in Vietnamese, it's called um, 
uh, uống nước nhớ nguồn um, literally means you know you always remember the source of where you drink water from and so mm-hmm. there's this huge sense of gratitude to Australia for giving us a second chance at life and that's mm-hmm. constantly drilled into me so I know very well that you know we are so lucky and that at the time you know the Australian government then was very welcoming of refugees and welcomed us with open arms in the early 80s and so mm. um but that's not necessarily the case now and that's something that really saddens me um i mean another thing would be climate action policy too and you know if we're always talking about how we can protect our future um that starts with protecting our environment as well um yeah there are so many others that i can list but do you have another couple of hours too <laughs> thank you so much for your time today too and for speaking with me at length and uh, you are an incredible human being and and just this conversation for me has really uh, solidified the impression that I think I had um, through a lot of commentary you had in the media and some of those um, Facebook and LinkedIn posts and yeah I really can't wait to see the things you go on to do in your career in your life as well and hopefully those contributions you'll make to 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 Australia I think it's really amazing what you've been able to communicate in this conversation about your own personal experience and kind of the grace and dignity and and generosity of spirit with which you've been able to talk about your experiences but also situate it within a much broader context which resonates with a lot of other people around the country. And finally, as you said in the chat um, today, hopefully, you know, this does sort of force political parties to have some real deliberations and, and, and thinking about how they can adequately represent their communities and make sure that all sort of corners of Australian society are being included in the political processes. So thanks again for joining me and have a lovely weekend. Thanks, Nick. Uh, it's my absolute pleasure.